So we're here. We are incredibly close now to the end of this journey with our Lord Jesus. Of course, he was arrested in Gethsemane. The, the crowd had what they wanted. They have Jesus bound. They had him presented before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. Are you the Messiah? They ask him. It is so, he replies. He reveals who he is. He makes it totally clear to them in our previous passage. That was it. That was the nail in his, in his cross. This is who he says he is. This guy believes he's the son of God. Therefore, he must die. Caiaphas, of course, um, the high priest, though not the recognized high priest, that was Annas. But Caiaphas had huge influence. It's hard for us to overstate how influential this man is, the high priest of the people. And he literally had life and death in his hands. And here he had this blasphemy case of Jesus that he sent on once. So we are obviously into narrative here. We are into kind of the chronological events of things happening. So we're just going to walk through this for the next 10 verses. And it is simply this. It is simply us exploring who is Pilate and what happens between him and the Lord Jesus. So I want to start here of who is Pilate. This is the Pilate stone. It is in uh, the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. And it tells us what it says on it. You can't quite read it. At the top it says Tiberium for uh, Emperor Tiberius. Pontius Pilate is under that. And his title under that is Prefect of Judea. From exactly the time frame we're talking about here. This is a real man. This is a historical figure. Um, And in 1961 this stone was found. It's wonderful, isn't it, when we see these archaeological facts just marry up so wonderfully with the scriptures. And we also find out a lot about Pilate from the ancient Jewish writer um, Josephus. And he writes um, in the Antiques of the Jews, uh, book 18, chapter 3, he writes all about this guy called Pilate. And what he does is is he talks about Pilate becomes governor of uh, Judea, which of course covers Jerusalem where they are. He is the ruling Roman in the absolute heartbeat of Israel. So Pilate is sent from Rome. He has his soldiers, as Josephus tells us, and they march towards Jerusalem as he goes to establish his reign there. And what they take with them is they take with them effigies and banners and images of Emperor Tiberius. They take that Caesar, uh, whatever you want to call him, they take these banners and they go walking with them. And in the middle of the night, they erect them around the city, these great images of Tiberius. I don't know if you've ever seen any of those pictures of places like North Korea, where they have massive, great statues and pictures um, of their leaders. But that is something that happened here. The Jewish response wasn't particularly favorable to this, of course, because this was a second commandment violation. This was graven images. These were not allowed Uh, So they went, and Josephus tells us they gathered day by day at Pilate's house. Every day they would come to petition him, please take down these graven images. We cannot stand to live under these anymore. But of course, Pilate, as we're going to see, is consistent, couldn't care less. He didn't have any uh, inclining towards the Jews or to their scriptures. He really didn't care. Eventually, Pilate meets them. He meets the Jews in the Hippodrome, which you can still visit today, and they say to him, please take this down. He sends his soldiers round them, uh, and Josephus writes that Pilate threatened uh, them their punishment, and it should be no less than immediate death. And we're told that the response of this Jewish crowd is this, 
They laid their necks, ba- their necks bare and said they would take their death very willingly rather than the wisdom of their laws should be transgressed. Jews say to Pilate, look, we'd rather die. We'd rather die than submit to your rule and reign and these images. From there, they send a messenger to Tiberius and say, this guy's a terrible ruler. Tiberius sends someone back and says, Pilate, settle down. Why do I bother telling you this? It paints this picture, the Jews and Pilate are not friends. There is no preferential treatment here. There is no need for Pilate. He doesn't owe them a favor. There is no sense in which Pilate is, is under their leadership far from it. So we have these two groups of people. There is no love lost between them. If anything, there is a fair bit of animosity. But the Jews now need Pilate's approval to carry out this execution. So let's pick up there with our religious leaders, verse 28. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters. Why? So that they would not be defiled, but could eat Passover. A week before this, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey to those shouts, those proclamations of Hosanna. Through that week, suspicion begins to rise. As they began to see that this prophesied Messiah on a donkey was not who they expected or they wanted. This wasn't a politically motivated Messiah that they looked for. Jesus came with a message of the revolution of the heart, not the revolution of something political, and they weren't too happy with it. We fast forward then to the end of the week, and here we have a bound Jesus. He's not riding on a donkey. There's no praise. There's no worship here. And he arrives at Pilate's house. The religious leaders can't go in. Why? Because he's a Gentile, and they'll be ceremonially unclean if they enter a Gentile's house, which means he, they can't participate in the Passover, so they made Pilate come to them. The question with that is, can anyone tell me where in the scriptures you find entering a Gentile's house makes you ceremonially unclean? You can't. It's not there. It's not scripture. It is rules created by this religious elite. Just an example of Pharisees being Pharisees right up until the very end of the life of our Lord Jesus. We know Jesus had some very, very strong words for this group, Matthew 23, 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you, always, uh, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And verse 24 of this, Jesus says to them, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel, you care for the insignificant, but you don't care about the significant, is what Jesus says to them. You take the important things of God and who he is, you don't care. You take minute insignificant things and you blow them up and you make these great rules that nobody can abide by. And in turn, what do you do? You return this whole religious system into such a burden. But as much as it was a burden for the people, it gave them great authority, it gave them great power, it gave them great influence. And Jesus hated that because his heart was for the people. Do you know, these were people that knew great chunks of the scriptures. 
They spent days and days on end in their places of worship. They tithed on top of their tithe. And Jesus says to them, you don't know God. So, they won't go inside. Pilate comes outside, verse 29. Uh, from 29:30. what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. You notice there's no specific charge here. You notice that everything that these religious leaders bring against Jesus is incredibly vague and ambiguous. There is little substance, if any. You see, if they'd said, this man claims to be the son of God, Pilate's going to say, I don't care. This this, this is Jewish stuff. This has got absolutely nothing to do with me. And it would have been thrown straight out. He would have had nothing to do with it. This is no threat to me. And it is no threat to Rome. He doesn't care. But. Verse 31. Pilate said to them. Take him yourselves. And judge him by your own law. This is incredible. Pilate gives them permission to judge Jesus. By their own law. Pilate's saying, this isn't my business, but I'm going to give you permission to do this. And I can't kill somebody just because they claim to be the son of God and might be a bit of a loony. It's not a reason for me to kill him. Do you know, this is a huge statement because in this world, Pilate has more power than Caiaphas. And he's giving the Jews permission to kill Jesus. You deal with it. Have all the power you want, but go and deal with your own problems. Do you know, this is really clever because Pilate, you know, Jerusalem, we're talking up to 2 million people descended for the Passover. Pilate doesn't want any trouble. He knows a lot of Jesus. He's got spies throughout the city. He will have heard a lot. But the last thing he wants is trouble and uprising. Continuing, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. We can't kill Jesus. They have a free pass, but they don't. It's interesting, isn't it? You look at Acts 7 just a few months later and the stoning of Stephen. Killed by the religious leaders. Total inconsistency. Total hypocrisy from them. Why do they want Pilate to be the one who executes Jesus so badly? Remember last week, we looked at the sovereignty and the lordship of Christ and all of this. This is where the beauty shines in this passage, verse 32. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Even here, before Pilate, when everything looks out of Jesus' hands, still he is at work. John 12, 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth will draw all people to myself. This is literal. When I lifted up, as in lifted up upon the cross, how did, how did the religious leaders, how did the crowds kill people? Well, you cast them down. You stoned them. You sent them down the way. So to be stoned and cast down wouldn't fulfill the words that Jesus had spoken in John 12. You see, if Jesus was stoned and Jesus was thrown down, it's all a lie. The scriptures are a lie. Jesus and what he says is a lie. But he wasn't cast down, was he? He was lifted up, literally up and upon the cross. As opposed to having rocks thrown at his head. Again, 
just more evidence of the outworking of the sovereign hand of God in the midst of this chaos. Do you know, Isaiah 53, we read of the prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus before the Persians have even invented crucifixion yet. Do you know, we're reminded so much throughout all of this, so deliberately by John, that God is sovereign. And it makes us ask the question then, if even in these moments, what is beyond the sovereignty of God? What is it in in our lives that feel beyond the reach of God? What is it that in which we feel totally alone and lost and away from God? Yet here we see there is not a moment in the darkest moments of our Savior's life where the sovereign hand of God is not at work. In the midst of these darkest hours, this sinless, blameless lamb led to the slaughter. He still reigned. There is no other picture like it. There is no other image. There is no nothing that compares to this moment of the Lord Jesus bound later with this crown of thorns and this robe cast upon him, yet still reigning. And God uses the two most powerful men in the land. He uses Caiaphas. He uses Pilate. Hugely significant men. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So we move then to our conversation between Jesus and Pilate, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate isn't walking into this blind. There's spies throughout the city. He knows who this is. How much he knows, we'll never know, but he has the finger on the pulse of what is going in in his city. He knows who's in front of him. And I think this is just an utterly perplexed question as he stands there and says, are you the king of the Jews? You. You standing in front of me, you are the man that claims to be this Messiah. There's no way. You're not serious. That's the tone I get from this. You know, Isaiah tells us there's nothing particularly remarkable about this man, Jesus. There's nothing beautiful. There's nothing amazing in, in, in the physical of him. You're it. And Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate, have you thought through for yourself who I am? Or have you just heard from other people? Faith is personal. Salvation is personal. It is a question that is posed to each of us. Who do you say the Lord Jesus is? Have you explored for yourself? Do you know for yourself? Or are you just going on what others have said? Do you know, you see the heart of Jesus towards Pilate here. He's saying to him, have you explored who I am? Do you care who I am? And this is a question to us all. Growing up in a Christian household will not save us. Having a spouse that believes, coming here on a Sunday... All of it's irrelevant to your spiritual state if you do not personally know and love the Lord Jesus. Pilate, do you think I'm the king of the Jews? I wonder, friends, if you know the Lord Jesus, are you happy going off what others will say? 
and claiming it as your own. Verse 35, Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Again, I don't care, Jesus. I'm not interested in looking at your claims of divinity. I really don't care. I'm not a Jew. This is of no relevance to me. I'm not interested in your claim. And he's getting a bit annoyed. Speed this up, Jesus. What have you done? Just, just tell me so that I can bring the charge against you and we can be done with this. He's getting a bit fed up. And Jesus' response is wonderfully ambiguous. Verse 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. We have two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of the world and we have the spiritual kingdom. And here we have our Lord Jesus proclaimed to be the spiritual king. Jesus came, didn't he, as a baby, a humble servant. That's how he lived his life. His humility marked his life to come and to save us from our sins. He came to offer us salvation, taken upon his shoulders at Calvary. One day, all opposition will be subdued. And all who rebel against him will be judged. Daniel 7, we read wonderfully. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was present before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every tongue might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, Jesus throws Pilate into a really difficult situation here. Because if he'd said, I'm an earthly king, fine, death. This is a threat. This guy's a problem. This guy threatens our stability. Let's get rid of him. But Jesus says, I'm a spiritual king. And I can kind of imagine Pilate hitting his head off a wall here going, you've got to give me something here, Jesus. What am I meant to do with a spiritual king? What am I meant to do with a guy that I'm not interested in exploring, not interested in knowing about, and now is claiming kingdoms and things that to me make no sense? Politically, Jesus is guilty of nothing. And that's a problem. It's a big problem for Pilate. He's not guilty of anything. So we have then these two kingdoms. I just wanted to pull a couple of comparisons between the kingdom or between the spiritual king and between the material king. One, Pilate would do anything, anything for honor, power, and glory. That's what he was hungry for. That's what the Roman Empire was built upon. This was the most important thing to our man Pilate. And then we have this spiritual king, the Lord Jesus. And what does he do? He gives it all up. He gives up his glory to come into this world as a baby. And for that moment to hang on a tree for our sins. Rome was built in the value of the pleasures and the good things of this world. Jesus tells us, don't lay up for yourselves riches on earth. And we have this royalty decked in royal robes. Tonight we'll look at the parody, the, the almost the court jester before the king of Jesus in his crown of thorns and in his robe. 
we have this royalty and then we're met with this man who had no former majesty that we should look on him. There is nothing, no beauty, nothing incredible about Jesus. We have the grandeur of this materialistic earthly kingdom and we have the reality of the beauty of the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to be a witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Jesus is still on track with his purpose. Yet again, his sovereignty is at work. He is still, uh, the, the Father is still dictating, still working in amongst all of this. For this purpose, I have come into the world. This purpose, this moment right here, standing right before Pilate in this second, this is part of my purpose. Nothing is out with the hand of God. And everyone who is of the truth, that is those that realize there is a spiritual kingdom and there is a spiritual king. And they seek it and find it. It is them who will hear his voice. Christ is calling this world, this materialistic world, to come and to seek the kingdom of God. Do you know, our world desperately needs a savior. But I wonder how many in our land today would prefer an economic savior to a spiritual savior. As the price of everything goes through the roof, as mortgages fly as there is significant challenges financially across our land how many would rather a savior that's going to sweep in and slash interest rates and bring the price of everything down how satisfying would that savior be one that would meet all the earthly desires of your heart jesus had just fed the five thousand and the people were asking give us more Give us more bread like Moses. Moses gave to our ancestors in the desert. Give us more. Jesus says to them, you don't need physical bread because you will get hungry again. But, but living bread leads to eternal life. The people said, give us bread always. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And from there, a group of these people go to find a savior that's going to feed them their bread. And we finish here. The first half of verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? This is the most important question we will ever ask. What is truth? It is the most important question the world will ever face. Our natural state, Romans 1, 25, exchange, we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served creature rather than creator. Do you know, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016 was post-truth. I don't know how up to date you are on, on how society defines itself or, or is defined. But it's an adjective defined as this. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotional and personal belief. In other words, the things that are important to people are now in our society less attached to actual facts, even if the evidence is pointing somewhere. How did we get here? How do we get to this point where 
the objectification of women is okay as long as it pleasures me. How is it okay that we're at a point where the murder of an unborn child is okay because they would have inconvenienced me? The fluidity of who we are created to be as men and women, I will identify as I feel. Whatever suits me. In this world, it's okay to steal, it's okay to manipulate, as long as it benefits me. It's okay to lie in certain situations, as long as it benefits me. And that backbone of truth and integrity, we need not look further than our political world to see that those things are of less importance than we once were. This is the reality of a post-truth world. It gives a need for us to justify harmful actions upon another because it serves me. And it is built on self-indulgence and a self-centeredness. What I think matters most, what, what I want, what I believe is right, well, that's the fact. That's what we're going to go with. And you disagree, even if it's factually backed up? I'm not particularly bothered. So we come to a bit of a problem then when we come to a man who claims to be the way and the truth in a life, don't we? In a culture that claims truth is what you make it to be. Because Jesus would say there is objective morality, there is fact, and there is objective truth that will stand throughout the generations. You see, Pilate exemplifies for us here the modern man. He exemplifies and exudes materialism. He pursued power, celebrity status, his sensual satisfaction. That's what he cared for. That's what drove him. It's what drove much of the empire. And we don't really know if Pilate wanted an answer to this question. He didn't stay around long enough to find out. I don't think this is some really deep, meaningful, soul-searching question of, Jesus, please tell me what is truth. But he decides not to wait for an answer and that small decision. Small decisions can have eternal consequences. First Timothy 6, we're told by Paul that, that, that Jesus testified the good confession before Pilate. So Pilate's skeptical response wasn't based on Jesus' inadequacy to present who he was. It wasn't like somehow if he'd preached the message of himself clearer, Pilate would have been saved. You can present the gospel as wonderfully as you like, as clearly and as accurately as you can, and still someday may laugh and walk away. Why does that happen? Because this is sin. And it is pride. And it is the thing that keeps people away from Jesus. This world thinks we know better than God that we sit in judgment over the Bible, that the Bible must agree with us, otherwise it is wrong. Rather than sitting under the word and letting the, ju the word have judgment on us. Pride keeps people from asking God to reveal the truth to them. God's word is true. The word became flesh and it dwelt among us. Truth is the life of the Lord Jesus which was manifest to us. When we compare our lives to the life of the Lord Jesus, there are some massive differences. 
as we examine that sinless man, we begin to realize how far short our lives are of his. We begin to realize that our nature in our day-to-day life is not as his was. But he reveals to us what we must do in order to be transformed into the image of this Jesus. The first step, the first step to truth is that Jesus' light shines into our lives and we're drawn to repentance. That good news of the Lord Jesus and who he is sits so oppositely to our human nature, we cannot but help come before him in repentance. And that gospel truth, that repentance leads us to surrender. Surrender to God through his spirit. What does that mean in a, in a post-truth world? It means we can rest secure, friends. It means we can rest secure that there is truth, that we know there is truth. His name is Jesus. Come what may, he is good, he is sovereign, he is here. Because even in the midst of this conversation with Pilate, Jesus is in control. First John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true and is in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Do not be like Judas or the religious leaders or Pilate. Do not miss the truth of the Lord Jesus. I think there's a helpful quote to finish from Tim Keller. Jesus doesn't just give us truths. He is the truth. Jesus is the prophet to end all prophets. He gives us hard copy words from God. Truths on which we can build our lives. Truths we have to submit to. Truths we have to obey. And truths we have to build our lives on. But he himself is the truth. So, is your hope in the truth of the Lord Jesus. Is your life built on the truth of who God is and what he has done for you at Calvary? And are you submitted in your words, your thoughts, your actions to his ways? What is truth? The truth is the good news of the Lord Jesus. The truth is the person of the Lord Jesus. The words of text in front of us. Truth is Jesus. Do we obey the truth? Do we take it seriously? Do we show that the Lord Jesus and who he is matters to us? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that by your abundant grace and mercy you have called us to yourself. That as we read of these few moments before your death 
we would see a sovereign God working out his plans and his purposes for us. Lord, embolden us in the truth. Give us clarity as to the truth. Make us, Lord, more and more people of your word, people of boldness. People who in such a compromised world would know that there is one who reigns. And there is not just a truth for me, there is not just a truth for us here at Hamilton Baptist Church, but there is a truth for the whole world. That there is a saviour who came to die for you, that you might be reconciled to God himself. God, we marvel. We marvel at Calvary. We marvel at these moments leading up to the cross. That despite the pain and the agony that you faced, our sins upon your shoulders, you carried on and you went to that cross for me. Thank you.